Good morning. This morning we're going to be back in 1 John. If you want to be turning there, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're beginning in verse 5. And as we get into our lesson, the question this morning as an icebreaker is, have you ever noticed that some things are not compatible? What kind of things are not compatible? What kind of foods are not compatible? Asparagus and ice cream. How about steak and milk? (laughs) Certain things just don't go together, do they? Certain foods are not compatible. Certain personalities seem to be not compatible. But the thing I think of the most when I think of not compatible, I think of oil and water. What happens when you mix oil and water? They just separate, don't they? And you can pour oil and pour water on top of it and they, just, they don't mix. They don't, they're not compatible at all. So without getting technical or being a science geek, the reason they don't mix has to do with polarity or molecular makeup. But this principle of certain things not being able to mix is a picture of what God has done for us. We're going to see today in our text that by our very natures, before Christ, we were unable to have fellowship with God. We were in the world completely distant and apart from God. There was no fellowship, no communion with God. And at a certain point in time, it wasn't even possible. Trying to have fellowship with God without the work of Christ is like trying to mix oil and water. It's just not going to happen. It's not even possible. The molecular structure of water and oil would need to change in order for them to be joined together. And that's true when we talk about God and man. And since God cannot change, He made provision through Christ's redeeming work on the cross to change us. Our very natures are changed. We're new creatures. We can therefore have that fellowship with Him that we talked about last week. This is the news that John is going to share in our text this morning. This is the Gospel. It's, I titled the lesson, The Good News. But before we get into our text for today, we need to do just a quick reminder of what we looked at last week. Last week we began by listing some of the difficulties and the evils that we are witnessing in our culture and how it's really no different than most of the other times in history. Things change, but they don't really change. When the disciples were writing and ministering in their day, they had just as many difficulties, if not more, than we had. And we study the first four verses of 1 John, where John reminded his readers of three truths about Jesus that would allow them to have an overflowing, abundant joy, even in the midst of opposition and difficult times. He reminded us of the truth about who Jesus was in verse 1. He reminded us of the truth about what he revealed in verse 2. And he reminded us in verse 3 of what that truth makes possible which is fellowship with the Creator. And it is through this fellowship, the relationship with God that comes through Christ, this relationship that changes us, those in fellowship with God have a new spirit, a new purpose, a new perspective that allows us to live life through the difficulties, through the the trials, through the evil of this world, and still have joy. It's how we can be in the world and not of the world. 
Today, as we continue in verses 5 through 10, John's going to elaborate more on this relationship. He's going to share four truths that are essential in understanding the true nature of this relationship. In essence, these truths make up the gospel message, the good news of the gospel. And after we examine these four truths, we'll discuss the implications of them for us today. But we're going to see the true nature of God. We're going to see the true nature of man. We're going to see the incompatibility of these natures. And then we're going to see the way to compatibility. And then we'll discuss the implication of these truths and a few what I call takeaways. So the first truth is revealed in verse 5. And it's the true nature of God. Verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. John proclaims the message. And when you go to the original writings and you look up that word that's translated message, and John is the messenger, the heralder. And it's much more important than probably we've first realized. Because when we think about getting news today, what do we do? We just flip on the TV or turn on our iPads or whatever, radio or whatever it is. And there's 24-hour news just cycling. I'm not sure that I would actually call most of it news. But it's, it's information and it's classified indirectly as news and it's it's constant but in biblical times when someone had a message and in this phrase this is the message that we have heard from him this is talking about something that's important it's usually something that was sealed it was something that a king or someone of real importance had a message to get across and he would send the herald or the messenger and they would actually get to where they're going and they would unseal the message and then relay it, something that was not known before. It would be breaking, breaking news, something new. And that's the connotation of this. And everybody would be gathered around. They would be intent on hearing what this was, what this news was. And John's saying that I'm the messenger, and he's making a proclamation, that I, and I'm going to share with you this important message. And what is the message in verse 5? What's our text say? What's the message? God is light. Three simple words. Make together a simple sentence with profound significance. God is light. As we begin to elaborate on the thought of fellowship with God, walking with God, enjoying the life of God, that is what John is talking about. Remember, he just said he wrote these things so that we might have joy and it, and it might be complete and then he jumps into this proclamation that God is light and there's no darkness in him so this first point he's making about this fellowship is that it begins with God you might think it's self-evident and that it doesn't need to be elaborated on but I think it's critical I think it's one of the most fundamental and neglected truths today where do most of the world and sometimes even believers start Sometimes they start with themselves, their needs, their desires, their concerns, their beliefs. When peeled back to the core, all of life's difficulties and problems that lead to a lack of joy at its root starts with self-centeredness, an exaggerated focus on ourselves. 
And John says, and all Scripture says, that our starting point is and should always be God. We should stand in the presence of God. Everything begins with God. And not only do we need to start there, that everything begins with God, we also have to examine the truth about God. We're not free to make up our own version of God. We see that every day, don't we? I was born in the Bible Belt in Kentucky, and I rarely met a person who did not confess that they believed in God. But they all had very different opinions of what that meant, who he was, what he expected. Most of them made up their own versions that were very different than what Jesus revealed. Many think of God as a God of only love. If you're not very bad, He won't send you to hell. Everybody that's pretty good is going to go to heaven. Some think that, you know, just as long as you confess, as long as you believe, it didn't really nothing else mattered. Some think Jesus is one of just many ways of getting to heaven. And on and on it goes. People don't always start with God and what He says. They start by telling you what they think based on their feelings. But in this statement, John begins with God, and he's already said that these are not things I think I know. These things, you remember, he said that he had seen and heard and experienced. It was based on experience, his personal experience. And he says, I'm sharing these truths with you. And then he says, God is light. He could have said so many things, couldn't he? If you were trying to describe God to someone, what would be your first instincts? What would you say? God is what? Love. Love, compassion, merciful, forgiving. We could think of all kinds of words. As I thought about this, I thought that's probably not where I would start. John said, God is light. So there's something very profound about this sentence. So to understand who God is and what He's like, John says God is light. So we have to ask the question, what is light? Is anybody a science nerd in here? Anybody know what actually light is? Mark knows. He's a... <laughs> you look like you had something on the tip of your tongue. You said several things there that actually are in real, the definition of what really light is. You said something about bouncing things off. It's a wave. Light is a wave of energy. You use the word energy. It's an energy and it's a wave. That forms the simplistic nature of what light is. But I'm not a science nerd and I'm not going to try to explain it, but... It, it is energy and it, has, it involves electricity and magnetism and it travels very quickly. A beam of light can go around the world seven and a half times in one second. That's pretty fast. Seven and a half times around the world in one second. Light can be extremely powerful as the energy behind laser beams has taught us. People have, have you heard of something called the petawatt laser? The Texas petawatt laser? It's the most powerful laser that we have created. They haven't even ramped it up to full power. It, it's too dangerous, to be honest. It's so powerful. Somebody in an article I read talking about this laser, and laser is light. It's light beam. I read an article on it that talked about the power of this, and it says somebody that wrote the article said that this was going to give us the opportunity to study 
planetary explosions and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, that sounds not very smart. I don't, I don't know that we need to study beams of light and exploding planets. And, but, you know, petawatt, you know what a petawatt is? You know, you know what watts are and how many watts and all of that? It's one billion million watts or something like that. It's more energy than is in all the power plants, electric and nuclear and everything combined in one petawatt. And they have invented this laser called a petawatt laser. And they, they are slowly ramping up the, the power of this thing. And light is the power behind it. Somehow that's connected with God is light. The power. John didn't say God is like light. He said He is light. There is a power in God because anything created, God's behind, right? He's behind anything that's been created. In Him is the power that we can even not comprehend in any way. And when you think about light, there's so much in here about, you know, we don't, we're only beginning to understand the light of the power of even the sun um, and, and what it, the power that's behind that. Light is behind all life. There is no life without light. There is none. It's not coincidence then that the first thing we come across God creating in Genesis 1 is light. If you flipped back to Genesis, we won't do it for time's sake, but if you flip back there and read in the beginning, you get right into it and it says that the earth was formless and void and full of darkness and God in the midst of that comes into that and says you know that he creates light and this was before he created the sun and the stars and the moon he created light because he is light and you think about light in the old testament you think about the shekinah glory you know when anyone came into contact with God what was one of the attributes of that the bright light the glory of God. When you think about Moses, do you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the glow that was in his face from the light, from just seeing the presence of the Lord? What was his face like when he came back down? It was shining from the light of being in partial presence of God. When you think about Paul on the road to Damascus, one of the defining moments of that was he was blinded by what? A great light. We are told in the New Jerusalem that there would be no need for sun because we will have the light of God Himself. As we can see, light can have a lot of meanings, but I think one of the overriding messages is about God's holiness. When you think about light, it is perfectly pure. We know this because of the use of darkness as the opposing thought. It says, in Him is no darkness. What is darkness usually referred to in Scripture? Evil. Sin. And in God is none of that, not a hint of that, not a trace of that. So we know that in this reference of light, there's lots of references of what light can mean, but in the, one of the major concepts of this is God's holiness. You know, when you think about trying to describe God in all these other ways, you can't understand all of these other descriptions if you don't understand God's holiness. You can't understand His love, His justice, His mercy, any of those things if you don't understand His holiness. We see that everywhere today as people form opinions about God around 
the attribute of love and mercy. When you think about some people and their thoughts about God being this great loving grandfather who would never punish anyone, why is that? Because they don't understand anything at all about His holiness and His need for sin to be punished. We have to understand that God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 says that. If we do not understand His holiness, we will not understand His plan of salvation. We won't understand the cross. It's, it is holiness that demands the cross. Everything is minimized and made useless if we do not understand God's holiness. That He is light and in Him there is no darkness. Not only is God holy, but Jesus is holy because He is God in the flesh. He said this himself in John 8. He said, I am the light of the world. He called himself the light of the world. Now, there's also other meanings behind some of these terms. There's meanings of light. Light is used a lot of different ways. One is to illuminate, right? Light illuminates. Jesus came into the world to illuminate, to bring light to who God was, to what his plan of salvation was. And personally... He even illuminates each one of us minds and hearts as He gives us faith and ability to understand. Another aspect of light is the bringing to light the truth. Those in darkness are deceived. The veil is over their hearts and minds. God brings truth to bear on every deception. All of this begins with the holiness of God. Standing in the light of a holy God exposes falsehood. And as you know, there are Many who have a false sort of fellowship with God made up by their own imaginations and opinions. But God's holiness exposes all falsehood. There is a false peace. There's a false joy. And those who have it do not understand the holiness of God. I know as I was thinking about this, there's a man in our community that Terry's had the chance to witness to a couple of times and he's obviously an unbeliever. And she's shared the gospel with him a couple of times. And he ends up just saying, don't talk to me about Jesus. Me and the man upstairs, we're tight. We got this understanding. You ever heard those kind of comments? There's no agreement. There's no bargaining with a holy God. His deception roots in his misunderstanding about God, who God is and his holiness and about who Jesus is. Jesus is the light. Light doesn't come from anywhere else, especially our own reasoning. To him, God is just love and compassion. He thinks he's in the light, and yet he is deceived, and he's in darkness. He has no clue what the holiness of God demands concerning his sin, or he wouldn't talk like that. He wouldn't be so flippant. We could go on for days talking about God is light, but there's so much we need to, to move on to, to talk about. So, the second truth that John shares, which is the truth about the true nature of is the true nature of man. We've seen the true nature of God. And now John in verse... And I'm going to skip down and I'm going to read verse 8 and 10 so that we can do this in kind of a flow. He, he says in verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What do these statements tell us about the nature of man? We're all sinful. We're all sinners. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 There's none righteous. No, not one. 
So in our day, we don't really struggle with this. I think everybody here would understand and believe that, that fact that we're all sinners. But for those who do not understand the holiness of God, they might think they don't sin, or at least they might think that they don't sin any big sins. It's not a big deal because I'm not a murderer or I'm not a rapist or those type of things. I believe one of the biggest problems even in the church today is that people do not understand the doctrine of total depravity. Sin is a word that's not used much. I don't know, if, being that you're, if you've been at Lakeside for a long time, you don't have a, you know, a feeling maybe of this, but if you've traveled or been a part of a lot of other churches, are you aware that a lot of churches never mention the word? You never hear the word sin. You never hear the word blood. Th- those things are kind of off limits from the pulpit. They don't talk about that. And even in society, what has been replaced? What has replaced the word sin? Illness sometimes. That's an illness now. You know, certain sins now have become mental illnesses or struggles or those type of things. It's, it's minimized. You know, used to be people knew what sin was. Now I'm finding it very common for people not to even understand what a sin is. And even in, within the church, sometimes we want to pick and choose what sins we focus on. We try to ignore some. Sin is not defined by us. Sin is defined by God and His Word. Men today are saying that they have no sin by the way they define and make up their own interpretation of what sin is. But when we do that, John says we're deceiving ourselves and making God out to be a liar. That is evidently what was happening when John penned these words. He is talking to those who claim to be believers. And he tells them in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him, if you call yourselves Christian, and yet you walk in darkness, he says you're what? You're deceiving yourself. Actually, he calls them a liar. You're a bold-faced liar. If you say you're in the light, and yet you walk in the darkness. And he's saying don't do that. Don't deceive yourselves. Your fellowship is a false one, a made-up relationship. It's not based on truth, and it will not lead you to what you desire. And I think there's so many people today that think they're good enough that they are forgiven because they call themselves Christians, and yet they are not in fellowship with God. They're walking in the darkness. They're walking in sin. Things have never really changed. They're not really new creatures. Their natures are still the same as they were before they claimed to become a Christian. People need to realize that John's not talking here just about sin specifically. He's talking about a way of life. When it says that you're in the light or you're in the darkness, you don't go back and forth between the light and the darkness based on whether you're walking with the Lord today and you're not walking with Him the next day or you're, sin- you're not sinning and you are sinning. You don't go back and forth. You're either in one realm or the other. You know, it's a pattern of life sets you aside and tells you whether you're in the light or you're in the darkness. There are only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And Scripture tells us that every man, woman, and child who's ever lived because of Adam's sin was born into the world of darkness. The whole purpose of the law was to show men that their sin, their inability to keep the law, to live up to the expectation of a holy God who within himself does not and cannot have any darkness, not one sliver. John does not want any of his readers to be misunderstood. He doesn't want them to deceive themselves. 
We are sinners. Do not lie to yourself. And what is the result of sin, the Bible says? Death. I think it's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. When someone, even if they claim to be a Christian, is in love with the world, if they go through their day never thinking of God, never being concerned about His kingdom, all their thoughts are on this world, it makes it obvious that they're not in true fellowship. That's impossible. Second Corinthians 6.14, Paul said, What communion has light with darkness? Some things are utterly incompatible, and this is one of them. The darkness and the light have no compatibility. You have to somehow find the way to make them compatible, and that's truth number three. Incompatibility of these two natures. Let me read verse 6 again. It says, If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is total incompatibility between these two natures. God is light. In Him is no darkness. So how does a holy God and a sinful man have fellowship? It's like oil and water. God cannot condone, be a part of, in any way, sin. I was reminded of Romans 5, 8, where it says, talks about those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And then a verse or two later, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law, for it is not even able to do so. It's not a matter of desire. You're not even able to do it when you're in the darkness. Sin separates. That's what it does. That is a truth that runs through all Scripture. It started in the garden. When you think about Adam and Eve, what did they do after they sinned? Hid themselves. They went and hid. God comes down. Look, He's not really looking for them. He knows where they're at. But He portrays that He's looking for them and He hollers out, Adam, where are you? Because it's, it's showing the separation that sin causes. God doesn't move. We move because of, of that sin. He, he now is separated from us. These two natures are totally incompatible. So what's the answer? What's the remedy? That's the fourth truth that John shares. The remedy. And that's in verse 7. Verse 7, there's one word that really is going to show the remedy. It says... But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Did you catch the word? What's the remedy? What was the word? The blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is the remedy. In, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, what is it that they would, they would spill blood because that spilt blood was what they were sacrificing and Jesus is that sacrifice. He becomes our sacrifice by the spilling of His blood. The Bible says without the spilling of blood, there is no sacrifice for sin. Jesus, by what He did on the cross, becomes our sacrifice. He becomes the way of compatibility, the way that God and man can have a relationship. He accomplished on the cross... All of that when He paid our penalty for sin. He goes on to say in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and He will forgive us and cleanse us. I think what John is saying, that through Christ and His death, you now have fellowship and are in the light. You are in the kingdom. But you're still going to occasionally sin. God is holy though. And He hates sin. And we are sinners, but it's not hopeless. It almost seems hopeless. If God hates sin 
and we still sin even after the debt's been paid, what hope is there for us? The hope is that that sin was paid once and for all, first of all. It was paid once and for all. If we sin again, that doesn't send us back out of the light. We're still in the light. And as we confess and repent and struggle to overcome our sin, God is faithful and He continues to forgive us and we stay in the relationship. You can't lose that relationship once you're there. One of the purest ways to know you're in a relationship and fellowship with God is that you struggle over your sin. An unbeliever doesn't struggle. It's fine with them. They don't care. They just minimize it and go on. When you struggle with your sin, when you repent and are, are sorry for it and ask God for forgiveness, it shows that you are in the light and that you are concerned about God and His kingdom. So what have we seen? We've seen the truth about the nature of God. We've seen the truth about the nature of man, the incompatibility of these two natures, and the way to resolve it. So what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about is what are the takeaway from these verses? Why is John writing these things now? Remember, the Gospels have already been written. He's an old man now. Why is he sharing this message again? What is his purpose in writing these things? What's the implication of this? What is, what is he hoping to accomplish? I see several things. First and for, foremost, the first takeaway I see is he doesn't want his readers to be deceived. Do you know people that you think that are probably deceived? I think we all are aware of that. Some of us may have family members that we think are deceived because they say they're Christians and, and John's readers, he's writing to a group of people that are calling themselves Christians and it's very strong language. He calls them liars. You know, He says that if you say you're walking in the light, but yet you're walking in the darkness, you are deceived and you are a liar and the truth is not in you. That's pretty straightforward language. And he's concerned about that. And I think we need to be concerned about that. First and foremost in our own lives, that we are not ever deceiving ourselves. And he says that, that our walk is the tell. He states it clearly and bluntly that those who say they are believers but their lives don't match up, they are deceiving themselves. I liken this to what is going on in the realm of our culture today with those who are in the camp of term is self-identifying. The world is propagating the lie that if a man in a, wants to identify as a woman, you should be able to use a woman's restroom, participate in women's sports, but as a believer, we understand that that is fallacy because we look at Scripture and we have truth. But many are denying, in our day, objective truth. There's an interesting video out on the Internet where this journalist asked a group of college students a series of questions concerning this movement, of course. They agreed that if he wanted to identify as a woman, he should certainly feel free to do this. So he goes on to ask them if he wanted to identify as a Chinese, would that be okay? And they hummed and hauled around and said, yeah, you probably have some Chinese somewhere in your background. If you want to be a Chinese person, feel free to do that. And then he goes on and he says, okay, I can be Chinese. I can be a woman. What about a seven-year-old child? If I want to identify as a seven-year-old child, can I do that? And then they kind of grimaced a little bit. And then they said, you know, yeah, sure. And he said, you mean I can go to kindergarten with your children and that's okay with you? As long as you're not harming anybody and you, you want to do that, that's, that's fine. And then he said, okay, 
I can be a woman, I can be a Chinese, I can be seven years old. How about, and this guy was short, he was like five foot something. He said, what if I wanted to be six foot eight tall? And finally one guy says, come on. He said, you're going too far. You know, you, you can't change your height. You can't be six foot eight. He says, like, let me get this straight. I can be a seven-year-old Chinese woman, but I can't be six foot eight tall. And by this point, they're getting exasperated, and the, the crowd, the, the people that he was asking the question, you just quit talking to him and walked away. Why did they walk away? Because there's no answer to that. You know, he got to the point where it was ridiculous, and I think they were beginning to see it, and there was no answer for that. There is no answer to truth. If God made you a man, you're a man. If he made you a woman, you're a woman. You can walk around masquerading as something you're not, but it doesn't change the truth. And we say, of course, we know this is true. But John, go, don't, don't get too far ahead of ourselves, because go back to verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, and while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There are people all over the world who call themselves believers... And yet, he says, John says, they're lying to themselves. I think there's a lesson there. We can self-identify all we want to, but we can't get away from the truth. And the Bible, the Word of God, God Himself, is the truth. And I'm afraid there's many people, I'm sure even here at Lakeside, well, I know it's true because I've, I've witnessed it. There's been people, even here at Lakeside, who's called themselves believers for years, and eventually we find out that they were never truly saved. We know people like that. We have family like that. We can fool each other, but we can't fool God. I'm sure we all have people that are in our lives that we're concerned about. Because somebody will say, well, is your so-and-so a believer? And you say, well, they confess, but there's no proof. Had any of us said that? It's a scary thought, isn't it? That we have loved ones who we don't see the fruit. That's one of our prayer concerns for us all the time is our children and our grandchildren will be so on fire for the Lord that there's no doubt about their salvation. I don't want when someone dies to have to go to the funeral and hope that they were saved. We want to know that. We want to be able to say without a doubt that they love the Lord. When I was doing this memorial service, I was speaking at a memorial service in my community recently, and it was obviously unbelievers, and they were making comments around the tables about what a good place they were in now and how they were you know, no longer suffering. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because even believers fall into the trap sometime of making comments like that. And we do it with grace because we don't want to judge someone's heart but I think in essence we don't always we don't want people to be deceived we don't want to at a funeral be telling their loved ones in hell but but we don't want to also be given false assurance and false comfort to people that everyone goes to heaven it's not scriptural and I think that you know should concern us we should be aware of that Satan is the great deceiver and we don't want to be a part of that. So, as you think about this implication of these words that John shares with us, 
first of all and foremost, don't deceive yourselves and don't be deceived. Don't be a gullible person. You know, if someone is not showing the fruit, you don't have to condemn them as an unbeliever, but you should be praying for them. You should be concerned about their salvation. So we don't want to be gullible or deceived. We need to recognize who is walking in light and who's walking in darkness. It's a very scriptural truth. Second thing I, I wanted to share just quickly from this was that John wants his believers, he wants his readers, the true believers that are listening to him, and he knows there's a mixture, but he wants the true believers' fellowship to not be hindered because of sin. We know this is part of John's message because the first verse of chapter 2, he continues by telling us that he wrote this so that you may not sin. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So it's important to him that they who are believers don't live like unbelievers, that they not sin. And that's, that's an important takeaway from this. And he calls them my little children. He knows that they're believers. He's, he considers them his children in the faith. He knows his audience includes all types of people, but he knows that there are true believers there. And he urges them that the things he's written, the things we just read and talked about, he's written those things so that they would not sin. And we know that Scripture is full of admonitions to this. We know that we're told in Matthew 18, talking about uh, confronting sin with, with each other. If, if, we have, if we're aware of sin, we know in Romans 8 that we're told to put the deeds of the flesh you know, to, to death. We're told in Colossians chapter 3 to put off the old self and put on the new. And all of this is talking to believers. So we know that it's important to God that we continually be working on our own sanctification not that we're in the darkness, but that we are to make that very clear that we are in the light, that we are to be walking. Our, one of our motivations is the fact that Jesus did spill His blood for us, that He did give His life for us. And when you think about the mercies of God in your life, what should that do? It should motivate us to live a life that is pleasing to Him and to try to purge all of the darkness out of our own lives. How many of you have read Jerry Bridges' book of respectable sins? Any of you? There's a few. What is a respectable sin? One of you who have read that book. What's a respectable sin? Can there be such a thing as a respectable sin? No, but what are some of the things Jerry talks about in his book? Anybody? He describes it as a sin that we kind of minimize that we don't really pay that much attention to we don't really you know we we put a lot of credence on the big sins don't we adultery murder lying stealing but what about gluttony it's listed as one of the sins that god hates think about the sin of jealousy even pride you know he talks about that in his book impatience a lack of compassion. There's all kinds of things, subtle things, that we just sometimes pass over. How does God feel about these things? Sin in general 
is abomination, right? Every single one of them is an abomination. It says in God there is no darkness at all. Which means there's no sin of any kind in any magnitude, no matter how we want to minimize it or, or not. God hates all sin. So I think that we need to keep that in mind as we think about trying to live in the light, live in the way that pleases God. I don't think any of us in this room would say we don't sin, but I think all of us in this room at times minimize certain sins. But when we minimize a certain sin, we're not acting like it is sin. We're saying that's no big deal. God doesn't care that much about that. So if we're in this camp, then our fellowship, when we do this, is being hindered by sin. And John doesn't want that to happen. He says he's writing these things so that we will not sin. Do you remember the account in the Scripture when Jesus was calling men to become His disciples and some of them were in a boat fishing and Jesus came to them and told them to throw their nets on the other side and they said, oh, we've been fishing all night, Lord. We don't need to do that. We're fishermen. We know we know whether the fish are biting or not. But out of love for Him and you know consideration for Him, they obeyed Him and they threw their nets on the other side and what happened? Boats were so full they had to call for the other boat and it was about the capsize. size. And do you remember what Peter said right after that incident? He said, Lord, depart from me for I am what? A sinful man. What made him recognize his sinfulness? Maybe doubt. But I think most of it had to do with the fact that he saw who Jesus was. When you see Jesus and God in their holiness and, and see and understand who they are, the light of Him, the God is light, shines upon you and you see you as who you really are. And that's what I think happened to Peter at that moment. He saw himself for who he really was and he saw God for who he really was and he said, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Now, I'm not saying that we should have that exact attitude, but I think we should have the humility that comes from that, that we should understand in light of who God is and who we are, the chasm that exists. And that points to what Christ did for us on the cross and brings us back to what we talked about last week, and that's that fellowship. We, the sinful people that we are, can have fellowship with the sovereign, majestic creator of the world. Is that not an amazing fact? People then didn't understand that. They thought of God, you know, as something that they could have contact with ever so often or whatever. We can walk in fellowship and communion and conversation every single moment of our lives because of what Christ did. As I was meditating on my study of this text, actually this morning, I was reminded of the truth that the moon has no light of its own. We look at the moon and there is no light coming from the moon. It's a what? It's a reflection of the sun. So I end my study on this note that we now, for lack of a better phrase, we are little lights. We have no light of our own. The only light we have is the reflection of Christ on us and to the world. And we, that's our job is to go 
and share that light with the world. I was when I got into this study I didn't realize what it really was. It's really just the gospel. It's just the gospel message in a couple of verses, you know, who God is, who man is, the way the incompatibility of our natures and how it's made possible through the blood of Christ. And we should take that, be grateful for that and go and share it with those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word and Father the just uh, the uncomprehendable truths that we continue to remind ourselves of that comes from your word, especially, Father, the fact that you have chosen us and allowed us to have fellowship with you. And that just blows my mind. Father, we thank you for that. We pray that we could be faithful to sharing this with those around us who need to hear this good news. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.